Now, the most famous sermon in all of American history, maybe even of the world, is something that maybe some of you have read in high school literature, maybe if it's still taught in high school literature. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, The sermon text was taken from Deuteronomy 32. It was a text that talked about the eventual slide of Israel into apostasy. And the text said, their foot shall slide in due time. Now the sermon, when it was first preached in Enfield, Massachusetts, it was so electrifying that many in the auditorium visualized themselves hanging by a thread over the gaping mouths of hell. And people began to wail. The sermon was not even complete, and people were crying out for mercy from God because the visualization was so strong. In fact, Edwards, as he's preaching the sermon, he had to quiet the congregation down so that he could finish his sermon. It was so moving, and it's widely recognized as the the beginnings of a great awakening within the American colonies. And many people who were nominal Christians, they were Christian because they grew up as Christians, suddenly realized that they had to give account to God for their own conversion personally. Now today, this sermon is probably what most people know about Jonathan Edwards, Uh, but they're not even aware that he preached sermons like heaven is a world of love. And so sometimes we have an off-balance perspective of people in the past. But given the Calvinistic perspective of Edwards, you might be surprised, though, to learn that Billy Graham, Billy Graham preached Edwards' sermon in 1949 in Los Angeles. In 1949, there was a campaign, eight weeks long, of nightly services, and in the middle of that series, Graham picked up Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and re-preached it with his own additions worked in. It surprised me to come across this because uh, Graham, who is, I would say, not a strict Calvinist, picked this up as a useful tool. And Graham adapted the sermon for his audience, and he emphasized the mercy of God without losing Edwards' original emphasis upon our sin nature, which makes us vulnerable. And here, uh, I want to share with you just some excerpts from this through this sermon this morning. Graham adapted to his L.A. audience, and I'm going to read some portions, and I want you to notice the red are additions that Graham inserted into this sermon. And if you could move the slide ahead, Caleb, that would be helpful. It says, um, he starts, unconverted men. Listen to this. Unconverted men. Walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. And there 
are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight. And these places are not seen. Walking in this tent, down that sidewalk, out on the street, every step you take on every rock and cover, and underneath is so weak that any step you might fall through and be in eternity, so says Jonathan Edwards, the president of Princeton University. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday, and the sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking men out of the world and sending them to hell that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at an expense of a miracle or go out of the ordinary course of His providence to destroy the wicked man at any moment. All the means that there are of sinners going out of this world are so in God's hands and so universally absolutely subject to the power and determination that it does not depend at all less on the mere will of God, whether sinners shall at any moment go to hell, than if means were never made use of, or at all concerning in the case. And the only thing that keeps them from falling into hell right now is the thin thread of God's almighty mercy. That's pretty strong and that's pretty weighty. But it was at these series of events, a man by the name of Louis Zamperini, who was a World War II uh, prisoner of war and veteran in the Japanese uh, theater, he gave his life to Christ and countless others responded to the gospel and, and confessed their need of Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. There was an awakening that occurred and people began to take the seriousness of their sin nature and take it desperately to heart. Now, when you look at the ten blows that are here delivered on Egypt, they're terrifying in and of themselves. We might be a little bit too familiar with, with hearing or seeing like the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and, or the Prince of Egypt and DreamWorks, that this has become something that is something less weighty. But all of these things are potentially terrifying. Pharaoh is a train wreck, actually, as you, and you can't look away from him. He is continually pulling his people into very desperate situations. And he is only a breath away from meeting his Maker. Why? Why would he provoke the Lord's mercy and the Lord's patience? And I say simply that his sin nature is what fuels and manufactures a pride within his heart that causes him to not listen to Moses and not to even consider. Now, uh, awakened sinners, people who have become more sensitive to their sin nature, unlike Pharaoh, they become very sensitive. Um, they remove within themselves the, the pride and they humble themselves so that they're able to hear better 
And they look to Christ as their only salvation. Now, our sin nature causes us, I've, I've, I've mentioned this in a previous sermon, our sin nature causes us to produce in like a pride-like earwax in our ears that causes us to be impacted and can't hear properly. That's all of our own doing. And Moses, who we considered last Sunday, is an alternative. Moses resisted God's call. Four times he resisted. And finally, God softened his wax up so that even though while he was resisting, he was now hearing, and he then responded to God's merciful intervention, and God chastened Moses very severely. A couple of, couple of months ago, we looked at these, these earlier passages in Exodus where Moses argues with God three times. No, I don't want to go to Egypt. The fourth time, he's going very reluctantly, and he's not from the heart willing to really follow the instruction. God meets him in an inn, and there's some interaction that takes place where Moses is about to lose his life. And at that point, he humbles himself, his earwax is completely melted, and he's now listening. He's now responding. God was abundantly merciful to Moses. But do you not think that God was not even super abundantly more merciful with Pharaoh? He was provided with three sets of warnings. And then a final warning. And then finally he goes into the heart of the Red Sea and he perishes with his people. You can't say that Pharaoh wasn't given ample enough warning to change his heart and humble himself before God. He freely chose his own path. And when we look at these three miracles and blows to, to Pharaoh in the subsequent part of my message this morning, I want you to notice this important truth, that when the finger of God touches you, it's important that we not resist His merciful call to respond. We may be a Pharaoh, but we may also be a Moses. We all equally need to turn our hearts over to the Lord when He places His chastening hand upon us. And He does this because He loves us. And He doesn't want us to follow our own heart. He wants us to humbly follow His Word. And so, I want you to consider the perfections of God and the structural layout of the blows if you're following along in your outline, I hope you'll, you'll consider um, uh, that as a help to you this morning. Uh, the perfections of God, that's a way of talking about His nature, His character. God is love, but God is also just. God is merciful, but He is also long-suffering. And in His expression of all of His character in the world, he does all things well. And as we look at 
the blows that come down the pike, there is a structural um, layout that is helpful for us to observe. There is a similarity, and I, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but eventually when I get to, to preach on the Ten Commandments, there is a structural similarity between the Ten Blows and the Ten Commandments. Uh, the very first blow, for example, to Egypt provides us a very rationale for all the rest. What you see is the Nile turning into blood. And it speaks of the power of God over life and death. And it is an ominous indication that there is a coming death of the firstborn and the need for a blood atonement. There is a, a connectivity to all of these blows. In a similar way, when you get to the Ten Commandments, you will also see that the first commandment provides a logical structure for the rest. For example, the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, the last commandment is, thou shalt not covet, which is to desire something above God Himself and His sovereignty in your life. And that is idolatry. And there is a connectivity that if you don't get the first one right, the rest are not going to flow out properly. And so there is a connectivity in the blows they're teaching just as much as the commandments teach us as well. That, I would say, is a, a macro structure. There's a microstructure that occurs in these, these blows. And I, these are maybe more literary, but they help us understand that there is structure in why there are groups of three. For example, uh, there is progressive movement towards the climax. The climax is the loss of the life of the firstborn. Uh, the first blow, when we look at the Nile turning into blood, the first blow in the first series of three occurs in public. Pharaoh goes down to the Nile. It's a very public, almost like a religious ceremony that he goes and he blesses the Nile uh, that which produces life for Egypt. And Moses meets him there in a public place. Pharaoh then turns and goes into his palace to avoid the obvious of which he sees. The second plague, or the second blow, Moses goes in to a private setting where, Moses, where Pharaoh is located. And then the third plague, the third blow, comes completely unannounced, as if out of nowhere. And this three-phase cycle occurs in the second set and also in the third set. And so this helps us to understand that there is a significance to the ordering to help us prepare to understand the main themes that are in them. There is also a psychological effect that gets progressively worse. Uh, in the first set of three, we, we read of the gnats coming at the end. Gnats are terrifying, especially if you get into a swarm of them. You, 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 start, to, you start to get unhinged, and you start swatting everything. But then you go into the second group, and the third 
is boils that start to affect the physical body and you begin to scratch yourself and you start to bleed at your orifices. You just can't handle it. And then the third cycle, you have internal mental anxiety of darkness. A darkness in which you can't even get out of your bed because you can't see anything. That is absolutely mentally terrifying. But then you get to the very epic climax and you see the death of the firstborn and that is the most traumatic experience. To lose the baby, the child that your heart longs for and loves. There is no trauma that can be equaled or compared with that. And so we see a progressive movement. We see also that the magicians acknowledge at the end of the first cycle that this is, this is, this is something significant. This is the finger of God. When we get to the second cycle, it gets a little bit bigger, and they say, this is the hand of God. Not just the finger. This is the hand. And then in the third set, absolute mutiny starts to take place. And then the final blow of the firstborn, Pharaoh himself has completely lost his voice. The people of Egypt say, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Pharaoh loses his capacity to even govern his land because the people see what he can't see. So what we have is this structural, internal uh, internal structure, it's important for us to see it, but we also need to see that there is an expression of God's mercy and His justice in His sovereign disposition as He governs the world. Now, I've said before that the word plague connotates like a random act of God without maybe an apparent purpose or intent. Now, the word blow, I have argued, more accurately reflects intention. And I do believe it's a better word because God intends to force the compliance of Egypt to His command. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that God does nothing without purpose or plan. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, you can, you can look over at that verse Chapter 9, verse 16, which we will come to in our, next, in our next sermon. He says, But for this purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so what God is saying is, look, even the raising up of Pharaoh, and if you think even more broadly in the Scripture, the raising up of Judas had an intent. Yet God gave Pharaoh every opportunity to repent and obey from his heart. Yet why doesn't he repent? Why doesn't he respond? I think we have to look to Paul in the book of Romans because Paul lets us know that Pharaoh is an example of someone who in the ultimate analysis 
would not respond from the heart. Pharaoh will let Israel go, so to speak, over his dead body, and it will cost him his life. Pharaoh is not going to glorify God from his heart. He's not going to worship God in spirit and in truth. He has a, there's a faux responsiveness, a false responsiveness. Now, in the book of Romans, Paul is very concerned that his readers will recognize that it is from the heart that one responds and believes the gospel. Romans 10 says this, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, it is with the heart that one believes and is justified. And what Paul argues through the whole book of Romans is this, that by default, all of our hearts are hard because we have a sin nature. No one seeks after God. None is righteous. No, not one. We are naturally against God. And what we do need, every single one of us, is that we need the Holy Spirit to awaken us, to cause us to respond to the Word of God, and we need to be sensitive to the finger of God as He begins to work deeply within our heart. I would say that in a general way, Paul does give us a reason as to why Pharaoh refuses to respond. I want to paraphrase Paul a little bit, and you can see the full context there, so I'm not taking him out of context. But God chose to endure with much patience a vessel of wrath, someone like Pharaoh who is prepared for destruction. There was a preparation and intent there, but yet God, with much patience, decided to suffer long with him. And he did it to make known his riches in glory in spite of the vessels fit for destruction. And so, I would say that that would be a very general reason, and Unfortunately, general reasons don't really satisfy inquiring minds. For example, why did God soften Moses over Pharaoh? As Paul puts it, they're both from the same lump of clay. They both have a sin nature. They're both sinners from birth. And the truth of the matter is that we are all sinners from birth. We all come from the same lump of clay. Well, what Paul says is that we are not actually entitled to know why. God specifically chooses to be merciful to some and not to others. And so we might be tempted to say, well, how can God find fault in us when we're entrapped in our sin natures? Well, Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? In other words, you're going to have to wait until heaven to get your answer. This is the way it is. And Paul is just simply putting it into basic terms. 
This is God's world, and you weren't the creator of it. He owns a universe. You don't own a universe. And this is just the way it is. And if that's the case, then the why is less important than the how. And in the next series of blows, we're going to consider the how. Because if it is his system, we ought not to get worked up about the why. We should really be much more concerned about the how. How is it that we harden our hearts? How does this occur? And what we, in truth, need to humbly admit is that we need the flame of the Spirit to soften our hard hearts. We need the flame of the Holy Spirit to awaken us to our lost condition. We need the Spirit to show us clearly that if we walk out these doors, we have no guarantee that we will not be met with an accident just around the corner that will take us from this life into the next. That is the human condition. And we are sinners, and we need the Spirit to show us our need for a Savior. Now, I've spent a lot of time setting up, but I can tell you, I want to show you how the rest of this is going to go pretty quick. Because now I think we have a sense of direction as we look at these plagues. And I want you to notice, secondly, that there is a permission of demonic deception in these blows. Um, 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul mentions these magicians, these court magicians. He, he, he mentions them by, by name, actually. Uh, he calls them Janes and Jambres. Now, if you read Exodus, and I read it, we don't, have, we don't see those names. And what Paul is doing is he's... he's there were stories that he heard as a kid, as a, as a young... Uh, when he went to Sabbath school, he heard stories of recreative, imaginative, like, and they gave these guys names. And Paul's basic point, though, is that these people opposed the truth. These people opposed, and that there is an inherent demonic essence that opposes truth. And demonic deception is real. And we are told to test the spirits. In fact, we know that during the great tribulation that will precede the Lord's return, there will be widespread deception, which threatens to deceive even the elect. You can read accounts in the book of uh, Kings in which Micaiah, a prophet, stood before King Ahab and told King Ahab that he had heard messengers come to him who were coming with deceptive spirits to kind of influence him to go in a direction that would lead him to death. And Micaiah said, look, don't just assume that because a prophet is standing there telling you what you want to hear that it's not from, that it, that is from God, it may not be from God. There are deceptive spirits that influence. And it doesn't take much for us to listen to false teaching that we would prefer. It doesn't take much to accept a narrative 
that is so widely assumed. And in the first three blows, Moses is affirmed in his resistance. And his his resistance is affirmed by the voice of demonic deception. And the reality is, it didn't take a whole lot. Because people believe what they want to believe. Let's look at the water turning to blood. The water turning to blood. I've already read this at the beginning, but I want to note that there are three phases in this blow. Three phases. The first phase has Moses striking the water with his staff. And it turns to blood and the fish die. There is a second phase in which Aaron uses his staff to kind of lick up the rest of the water. He holds out his staff and all the canals and all the standing water in the land starts turning to blood. And then there is a third phase in which the magicians repeat the miracle, but on a much more limited scale. In verse 22, uh, we see that the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. What water did these guys use? What they used was that which had been dug in verse 24. And the digging released water from the ground that had not been contaminated. But think about the limited nature of this. Because in verse 25 it says, seven days passed and the, that the Lord struck the Nile. There are three reasons that I see why it took seven days between the first plague and the second plague. The first, it would have taken days for thousands and thousands of gallons of water to clear out of the Nile. I mean, the Nile goes all the way to Ethiopia. It is miles and miles long. And it also made a clear distinction between the first plague and the second plague that the frogs didn't come out because of the blood. They're two separate things. And then third, it's to emphasize the limited nature of these magicians. It it only took maybe a gallon or two of water to impress Pharaoh. And he couldn't see the thousands and thousands of gallons of water of the Nile. The reason is that Pharaoh wanted to disbelieve. He didn't want to believe. And that's all it took. Demonic deception on a such limited scale was enough to satisfy his curiosity. So he turns away and he walks back into his palace and He shuts the door, and it's all gone. Or is it? Well, in verses, chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, we see frogs in the bedroom. Frogs in the bedroom. Pharaoh had the luxury of blocking out what he doesn't want to see. However, he cannot escape because God's sovereignty finds him in his bedroom. Now, in this miracle, only Aaron uses his staff in verse 5. 
Yet the magicians seem to be able to replicate the, the movement of other frogs out of the Nile. And we see that in verse 7. But there is a limiting factor here that is also a little bit more subtle. And Pharaoh even admits that his magicians, with their demonic capacity, are still limited, although he isn't willing to say that he now submits to the Lord. Pharaoh quietly admits that his, his magicians were useless because he has to go to Moses to get the frogs to go away. If his magicians were good enough, they could have removed the frogs. Now, what happens in verse 9 is pretty confusing. Why does... Moses gives Pharaoh the option. It's really strange. In verse 9, it says, Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. I believe what Moses is doing here is playing to Pharaoh's pride. Now, it may not be the best move by, by Moses, but he knows that Pharaoh is used to calling the shots. He's used to saying, go and fight this battle and his servants go and do it. But in this interaction, Moses becomes to Pharaoh like a magician, as someone that he can command like his other magicians. Pharaoh now thinks that he can manipulate God. In other words, I can make a confession a tool to manage my future. The thing is, God knows our hearts better than we even know our own hearts. We can, can make confessions in order to manage our future to provide for us a much better outcome but we are fools for thinking that. Verses 16 to 19, we see the third and the last in the cycle. We see the gnats. The gnats that are in the eyes, the ears, the nose, and throat. Okay, it doesn't really say that. But have you ever been in a cloud of gnats? Have you ever been in a cloud of bugs before? I have. I lived in Canada. They have they have bugs that will carry you away. They're so large. And if you open your mouth, you'll probably get a little more protein than you wanted. It's terrifying, actually, because they get inside of all your orifices. They don't have any, like, sense of your personal space. But the magicians here know something that Pharaoh is unwilling to admit. This is the finger of God. And the unavoidable conclusion is here. Yet Pharaoh, he doesn't want the truth because his heart is hardened and his sticky pride that's in his ears prevents him from hearing. Please forgive me for bringing up COVID again. 
But has not COVID taught us a lot of things? It is widely now recognized that most of what we heard was false. And I don't think I'm speaking at a turn here. We were all told that if we take the vaccine, we would not get COVID. I think it's important that we not overlook how God allowed concerted opposition to truth to occur over the last three years. Opposition to truth is inherently demonic. Yet God permitted these demonic deceptions to occur. I want to be clear. COVID was not the finger of Fauci. It was the finger of God. The Scriptures tell us that when judgment comes, it must start first in the household of God. Listen to Billy Graham channeling Edwards. Think about how apropos this is. Again, Edwards's words are in black and the red is Graham. Natural men's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them do not secure them any moment. In other words, all the security you take to preserve your life, you can get in a room and lock every door and nothing in the room can harm you. And Jonathan Edwards says that he believes scripturally that there, that, that, that is no security, no matter what caution you take. I read about a man the other day who was so germ conscious that he'd st- just stayed in a room all day long and he kept netting around him all the time. And he had a germ phobia. That is no secret security that that man may not die at any moment of some dreaded germ or some disease were it not for the mercy of Almighty God. Men's own wisdom is no security to them from death. That if it were otherwise, we should see some difference between the wise and the political men of the world and others with respect to early and unexpected death. But how is it, in fact? Ecclesiastes 2.16 says this, How dieth the wise man? And then it answers, As the fool. You see, if our first inclination is safety first, Do you know what's going to happen? We'll listen to the magicians who tell us what we want to hear. And at the end of the day, we're still only one breath away from eternity. And the question we need to ask ourselves, do you believe from the heart 
that to be with Christ is far better. From the heart. And when the finger of God touches you, don't resist His merciful call to respond. At times I wonder if a sermon like sinners could even be preached today as it was in its original context. And I would have to say probably not. And the reason for that is that most of us have already accepted the spirit of the age, which tells us that we're basically good. All we need is just a little tinkering, just a little tune-up, just lift the hood, see what's shaking, what's rattling, give it a little fix, a little nudge. No. The gospel tells us that we are great sinners. But on the other hand, it tells us that we have a great Savior. Now, I want to close the sermon by echoing the two prophets from the past. I want us to hear Jonathan Edwards and also Billy Graham as I close this message. The wrath of God is like great waters that are restrained for the present, but they increase more and more and rise higher and higher. There is nothing but the mere mercy of God that holds the waters back. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would fly open. And the fiery floods of the furnace and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withhand the wrath of Almighty God. I tell you tonight, the wrath of God is something. And God says that the judgment is coming upon this world. And God says the wages of sin is death. And God says the soul that sins shall die. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight, men and women, tonight, every one of us who are hanging over the pit of hell, and the only thing that keeps us from dropping in is the mercy of Almighty God. And tonight, I'm glad to tell you something. Because I'm glad to tell you this, that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and that God loves you with an everlasting love. And the mercy of God is everlasting to everlasting. And when the finger of God touches you, don't resist His merciful call to respond. God is faithful that if you call upon His name, He will in no wise cast you out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for time and the Word this morning. We do pray, Father, that our hearts would be challenged with the, the reality of the brevity of life, but that we would humble our hearts to recognize that You give us many, many opportunities. Now, I suspect that here this morning, 
Many who make it their effort to be here are truly born again. But of course, we all know that we can become proud and lazy and, are, and apathetic. And may we not, may you use your, your chastening hand to lovingly bring us back to a closer relationship, a closer walk with you. May we not go lethargic in your mercy and in your grace, but that we would pursue a close following of you with all of our lives, with whatever you would ask us to do. And so we ask for your grace to continue and to multiply in days ahead. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to sing in closing, Merciful God.
Thank you for coming this morning, and I trust that uh, in the songs and in the Word that uh, you have been instructed and encouraged. I pray, Father, that uh, I pray to the Father each and every week that uh, the Word would be used appropriately. And so, again, thank you for coming. Um, if you're visiting with us uh, this morning, I, I do have a gift I'd like to give to you, and uh, Jim Rao is one of our elders here. I'm not feeling the best, but Jim's in better shape than I am. He would love to say hello to you at the back near the coffee, and uh, we have a gift uh, for you. Uh, do, do go see him there. We do have um, the discussion-based Sunday school in the fellowship hall if you're uh, able to stay with us. We hope that you can. Uh, let's close with a prayer of benediction. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.